Why do bad things happen to good people? It is a question that most of us have heard before, and it's a question that perhaps even some have asked before. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, while there may be a genuine sincerity and a deep desire for revelation in the asking of this question, a real yearning to know why, it does betray a profound misunderstanding in at least two ways. Firstly, it misunderstands humanity. When we look to the Bible, we see in Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Are there any good people? No, not even one. In Romans 5 verse 11, Paul also states, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, the one man that Paul speaks of here is Adam, the first man through whom all of humanity came, including his wife Eve from his own rib. And since Adam sinned and it was after the fall that he and Eve conceived children, every single human has been born with a sinful nature, a nature that is decidedly not good. And here is where we see that the reference to good is not in comparison to the person next to us. It's in comparison to God. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee was able to commend himself to God only by, by stating his, his supposed goodness in comparison to the tax collector. Whereas the tax collector compared himself to God's standards of goodness and he realised that he fell infinitely short and saw that his only option for salvation was to cry out for God to have mercy. If you're here today and you are still relying on your own level of goodness to make you right before God, then please let this be the day of your salvation and throw that nonsense away and call out to God for his mercy. What we see then is that to ask why do bad things happen to good people is to misunderstand the nature of people. Humanity is not good when viewed rightly from God's perspective. The one who is the standard and the judge of what is good. And what we really should be asking is, why do good things happen to bad people? Now, we addressed this last week when we looked at Psalm 73 and saw the struggle that the writer had in in seeing those who disregarded God living such blessed lives, or supposedly such blessed lives. His temptations to turn away from God and follow the wicked were stemmed, however, when he received God's revelation that whatever blessings they received would not last forever because they would eventually stand before the judgment seat of God who would condemn them for all eternity. 
Yet we must also recognize that any good thing that people receive is from God. It's he that sends the rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45. And every good gift and perfect gift is from above, James 1.17. God is good, even to his enemies whom he will one day judge. So that's the first misunderstanding, a misunderstanding about the true nature of humanity. There is no one who is good. But the second misunderstanding is a misunderstanding about Jesus Christ. He was born of Mary and so was truly man, and yet he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which meant he was not born with a sinful nature like the rest of us. And not only was he truly man, he was also truly God. And so Jesus was the only one to walk this earth who was by uh, who was good by God's standards. And yet, very bad things happened to him. Every single affront that Jesus faced in his earthly ministry was a travesty. Because he never sinned. And so it was never doing anything that was ever deserving of anything that happened to him. Now, the greatest travesty of all, in fact, the greatest injustice of human history was when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross and the Father laid upon him the sins of his people and poured out his wrath upon him to pay that judgment price. In the case of Jesus Christ, we may legitimately ask, why did bad things happen to this good person? But then John 3.16 tells us very clearly why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was through Jesus' life, and death and subsequent resurrection and ascension that salvation could be gained for sinners. This is how God purchased his people for himself. He paid the redemption price to rescue them from bondage and slavery to sin in order that they might not face his righteous wrath. All who come to repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation can know with absolute certainty that Christ suffered to save them. He had them in mind on the cross. But there is a further misunderstanding when we think of the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And perhaps we might rephrase this question slightly to ask, why do bad things happen to God's people? You see, there is a lot of confusion in the church today uh, where people think that in becoming a Christian, there will be no more suffering in this life. Like somehow redemption means heaven on earth, right here, right now. Now, in one sense, we do get a taste of heaven right now. Ephesians 2 verse 6, we as Christians are told that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that's truly incredible. But that doesn't mean exemption from suffering now. In fact, later in the letter of Ephesians, Paul speaks of the spiritual battle that is currently going on. 
that we must be armed for and prepared to face. The Bible never gives any suggestion that our best life is now. We await a glorious future, but in the meantime, life for believers can be downright hard and costly. Now, it's to this issue that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The issue of the suffering of the righteous. The suffering of God's people who are righteous in Christ by God's grace. And we could look at this in a number of ways, but I want to focus our attention on suffering that occurs through persecution. Suffering for bearing the name of Jesus Christ. And one of the... One of the most significant writings on this matter is the first letter of the Apostle Peter. Here we find him writing to a group of churches all experiencing suffering for the cause of the gospel. And in chapter 4, he really hones his discussion to give us some vital words of wisdom on this matter. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Peter 4. And let's study the Holy Spirit-inspired words of the man who knew what it was to count the cost, a man who faithfully served Christ unto his own martyrdom. (coughs) So 1 Peter 4. In verse 12, Peter begins with the expectation of suffering. He says this, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now Peter, he addresses the believers with such tenderness, referring to them as beloved. Those who are loved by God and those whom Peter loves as fellow brothers and sisters in the household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's with this sincerity from this genuine heart of love that he seeks to dispel any notion among believers that Christians should be without suffering in this world. That's, that's his act of love, to remove that notion. It is an incredible act of love on Peter's behalf to remove the blindfold from the eyes of believers. See, it's a delusion to think, uh, to somehow think that uh, the world who crucified our Lord should somehow treat his followers any differently. Those who teach the prosperity gospel that says Christians should expect material blessings in this life of health and wealth are teaching a false gospel. And they are certainly not teaching out of love because love speaks the truth. Now Peter, he's simply relaying what he heard personally from the lips of the Lord Jesus in the upper room. Those words were recorded in John 15 where Jesus stated plainly in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. Here he was about to be betrayed and arrested within a few hours and then the next day be tortured and executed. And he says in effect to his disciples, If they're going to do that to me, don't think that by joining me, they will treat you differently. Peter reminds the believers, he reminds us as we read 
his words today, that we should not think it strange that in bearing the name of Jesus, we are persecuted. After all, as Paul says in Colossians 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we have been rescued from sin and from the wrath of God. We've been graciously brought into the kingdom of Christ, having reconciliation with holy God. Our eternal future is secure. And of this, we can have great assurance and confidence. And yet, while we still live in this fallen world, this domain of darkness, which Satan is still the prince, we whose true citizenship is in heaven are now, as it were, living behind enemy lines. And we can see this in the way that Peter addresses his, the believers elsewhere in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to them as the elect exiles. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he urges them as sojourners and exiles. Believers are living in a land that is not their own. We've been called out of the world and sent back into the world to be salt and light, to testify to the glory of God and Jesus Christ. But our real home is in heaven with God. And one day we will know the full blessing of that reality. But until then, we must acknowledge the words of the Apostle Paul, who says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's inclusive. All, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet, in God's providential guiding, we see that the persecution inflicted on believers is actually used by God as a means of growing his people in sanctification. Peter tells the believers that the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. God is not the author of evil, and yet nothing ultimately happens outside of his sovereign control, such that he is able to put evil to work for the purposes of honing his people to grow to maturity in Christ. Now, that's such an important point. Uh, but let me save elaborating on this uh, until later in the passage when it's addressed further. So it's by God's grace uh, that he has revealed to us in his word that those who bear the name of his son should indeed expect persecution. And by informing us ahead of time, we're not left wondering what is going on when persecution arrives on our doorstep. Now, Peter doesn't stop at informing believers to expect suffering. He then goes on to teach us how we should respond to suffering that occurs for the sake of Christ. In verses 13 to 14, we learn about the exaltation of suffering, the rejoicing that we are to have in suffering for Christ. He says this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And do you see what he's saying here? 
He is saying that if believers are persecuted in standing for the gospel, we should be filled with immense joy because we have assurance that we really are believers. Who on earth is going to stand for this if we're not truly belonging to Christ? Now, Peter, he's not advocating masochism here. He's not saying that we should delight in the pain itself. But our delight is to be in what the pain points towards. If we are persecuted as we seek to proclaim the truth of God's word, we have the joy of knowing that we truly belong to Christ Jesus and that we will one day experience the full blessing of our inheritance when we are raised in glory, when he is revealed in glory at his second coming. This is reiterated by James when he writes in chapter 1 verse 2, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The experience of the early church demonstrates clearly that this was not just pie in the sky kind of stuff. That the biblical writers were not merely offering simple platitudes about the joy we find in suffering for Christ. They weren't just handing out bumper stickers here. This was very real. In Acts chapter 5, The apostles were arrested, placed in prison for preaching the word. They were miraculously led out of the jail by an angel of the Lord and went straight back to preaching, only to be arrested again and brought before the Jewish ruling council. And then the council eventually decided to let the apostles go again, uh, but not before physically beating them and charging them not to speak in the name of Jesus. But listen to what happened next. Verses 41 to 42. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This here is the big difference between joy and happiness. The world is in the pursuit of happiness, but Christianity pursues a far grander objective, and that is joy. Now, there's nothing wrong with happiness, but happiness is the feeling we experience only when things are going right. Happiness is the flag that blows back and forth with the changing winds, whereas joy is the flagpole, remaining firm and steady no matter what the weather. Christians are joyous because of what Christ has done and of what Christ will do at his return. These truths keep us steady no matter what we face. Do you think the apostles were were happy when they were beaten? Do you think Paul's experiences would have caused him happiness? I mean, listen to what he shares in 2 Corinthians 11. And this is just a snippet of the wider verses he speaks about. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I was I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And then he keeps going. Now these are certainly not the conditions for happiness. And yet he was a man filled with great joy and who could write in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light, momentary affliction, five times I received 
At the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. I was beaten and I was stoned. Our light, momentary afflictions, he says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The biblical writers could pen these words and live it out because they knew the promises of God and it filled them with great rejoicing. But not only did they know the promises of God, they knew the presence of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. In our passage today, Peter says that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God mercifully sustains his people through the fiery trials, strengthening them and guiding them. In God's economy, we can rejoice in the persecution we receive as a believer. Jesus affirms this in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Then he also offers the flip side when he warns in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's an indictment upon us if everyone, regardless of their relationship to God, speaks well of us because the gospel is an offence to a sinful world. And if no one is offended by us, then we're clearly not preaching the word. Now, this is not an excuse to be offensive in the way that we preach and live, for we are called to speak the truth in love. But Jesus is saying that the gospel itself is an offence. And if there's no reaction by the unbelievers around us, then we need to think hard about what that means. There is to be an exaltation in suffering, a, a rejoicing in Christ in our suffering because it assures us that we belong to him. And yet, as we've just mentioned, it is to be the gospel itself that is offensive, not us. And so Peter, he goes on to specify that any suffering we experience is to come from acting in righteousness, not from acting in foolishness. In verses 15 to 16, he explains then the extent of suffering. That is the limits of why suffering should occur. He says this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So if believers are to suffer, it is to be because they have been doing good, not because they have been doing wrong. Earlier in chapter 2, Peter draws this out when addressing the relationship between Christian servants and their masters. And he says in verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When believers suffer because of their own sinful actions, that's not cause for rejoicing. It's not something that that raises a believer's confidence that they belong to Christ Jesus. Peter has stressed over and over throughout this letter that believers are part of God's household by the grace of God alone. And now as those who have been born again into his family, they are by the continued grace of God 
to strive for holiness. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, he declares, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What about chapter 2, verse 24, where he says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, this is the exactly the same concern that we've seen the Apostle Paul elaborating on in the book of Titus. Now, he opened that letter explaining that salvation leads to godliness. And then in chapter 2, he goes about defining uh, what godliness looks like for different groups within the church. And we ask, why is godliness so important? Well, Paul tells us, chapter 2, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. So the way we live as Christians is vital. If there is no sanctification, then how can we be sure there is justification? If there's no desire to honour Christ in every aspect of our lives, then how can we be sure there is truly love for Christ at all? What Peter is emphasising here in chapter 4 is that there is no shame whatsoever in suffering when it comes about by standing for the gospel. In this, we can give praise to God that he has given us the title of Christian, one who is devoted to his son. But there is no honour at all if our sinful actions have brought suffering upon our own heads. If we are murderers, thieves, evildoers or meddlers, those who seek to interfere in others' lives. Of course, there is forgiveness available to the one who repents. But the warning is to avoid such things that will harm ourselves, that will harm others and that will malign the testimony of Christ. And instead, to stand firm for Christ and to live in a manner that gives glory to his name. Now, I mentioned an important point that we would need to come back to, and that was how God could even use the persecution that Christians suffer as a means of testing and refining his people. And now is the time to come back to that, because as we head into verses 17 to 18, we see that Peter gives the explanation of suffering. He says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What is the purpose? What is the reason that God allows his people to suffer in persecution? It is one means that he uses to purify the church, that it might be in practice the spotless bride for his son. Through faith in Christ, the believer is made holy in the sense that they have, by God's grace, been set apart from the world and set apart to God. This is the work of God alone. And yet we are then called to strive for holiness. 
And so the first might be called positional holiness. God has put us into the position of holiness. And the second might be termed progressive holiness. Because now that we stand in God's grace, he calls us to progress in holiness. And so when Peter speaks here in verse 17 about judgment beginning at the household of God, he's not talking about judgment that leads to a believer's condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what he means is that God is determined to cleanse and purge his people of indwelling sin that still remains in our yet as unglorified bodies. In his great love for us, God providentially uses persecution to grow his people, to form and to mould his people to be more like his son. In the opening chapter uh, of his letter, Peter has already made this clear. In chapter 1, he begins speaking about the incredible blessings that the believers have in Christ Jesus. Truths that cannot be shaken. Uh, They have been elected and foreknown by God. Uh, They have received God's mercy as he's caused them to be born again. And he's brought them into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they have the assurance of an extraordinary future inheritance of eternal life. Then Peter says in verses 6 to 8, In this you rejoice. That is all of these blessings. In these things you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows the persecution of his people that they might be grown in their faith and in their dependence upon him. And why should we worry if we suffer or if we die for the faith? Because we are trusting uh, in the power of the one who raised the sinless son of God from the dead. Why should we worry if we are killed for our faith? Why should we fear of losing our lives? Because our inheritance is in the kingdom. Our inheritance in the kingdom of God is imperishable. It's being kept for us. And God is preserving us in the faith that will reach that heavenly goal. But the suffering of the godly also sheds light on the suffering that awaits the ungodly. Peter sets up a comparison. You see, if God is that concerned over the holiness of his own people, whom he's already made holy through Christ, then how much more so will God unleash his wrath upon those whom he does not love? If God disciplines his children, how much more will he punish his enemies? Peter quotes uh, from Proverbs 11 verse 31, which says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And he does so to strengthen his point. If God's people are judged, how much more so will those who do not belong to him through Jesus Christ Now, this is not meant to be a sense of fear for the Christian. The Bible is clear that God disciplines those whom he loves. If we're not disciplined, then we're not his children. So while it reminds us of the vital importance of holiness, it is meant at the same time 
to bring a profound sense of comfort. When we are persecuted for bearing the name of Jesus, we have assurance that we belong to Jesus and that God will use that trial to mature our faith. On the other hand, for the ungodly, the wicked, the one who does not trust in Christ Jesus, these words of the Apostle Peter should bring about profound discomfort. They should cause the unbeliever to quake, for they sit under the condemnation of God, and they will one day be cast out into the lake of fire where they will experience the righteous wrath of God poured out on them for all eternity. Now, if that is you, if you are someone who has not submitted to the Lordship of Christ Jesus, then I implore you to trust in Him for salvation. Now, you might be a visitor here today, or you might be someone uh, that has been coming to church your whole life. But either way, if you know within your heart of hearts that you have never truly bowed the knee to Christ, never trusted fully in His work on the cross to pay the price for your sins, then the only assurance you can have is that you will answer to God. And in His righteous and perfect judgment, you will be found guilty. But there is good news. Through repentance of sin and faith in Christ Jesus, salvation will be found. But it is found only in Christ. So come to him. Now, moreover, you may be someone who says you believe in Christ, but your life says otherwise. This passage today is a reminder for Christians to honour Christ through the whole of their lives. If you are living in ways that are habitually and constantly reflecting the ways of this world rather than the ways of Christ, you need to consider things carefully. Have you truly believed upon Christ Jesus? Have you been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit? Because a regenerated person is a person who strives for holiness. This is not to say that works save, but that works are a necessary fruit. Sanctification always follows justification. Otherwise, there has been no justification. Because James says, faith without works is dead. And so I pray that you consider carefully the words of the Apostle Peter. God uses persecution to grow his people. But if he allows this judgment on his people to grow them in holiness, how much more so will he mete out his just punishment on those whose sins have not been covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? For the church, Peter's explanation of suffering encourages us to keep striving for holiness, to keep pursuing godliness, to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, knowing that whatever persecution may come, it serves to affirm our confidence that we belong to God, that in his love he is growing us in our faith and enabling us to endure for the glory of Christ. And this brings us to the final point, The final charge from the apostle to the church. And so in verse 19, we see the edict of suffering. Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
It is a command for believers to trust themselves to God's care. When persecution comes as we stand for the gospel, we are to recognise firstly that, that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign and providential control. Nothing happens outside of his will. If it was not his will uh, that we should suffer persecution in proclaiming the gospel, then it would not happen. Again, we must remember that while God is not the author of sin, he does allow it to be carried out for his purposes. If he did not, if it did not assist his purposes, then it simply wouldn't happen. Therefore, we can be glad and rejoice when persecution comes because God has allowed it for his sovereign purposes. Now, to begin to comprehend such things is more than we can look at this morning, but we must understand, in short, what God declares through the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 55, we read in verses 8 to 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now Paul says in Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is knowledge. This is truth. We know that God does this. We know that God is light and in him is no darkness. We know that God works all things, both good and bad, ultimately for the good of his people under his own purposes. It is a great mystery how God does this, and yet he has revealed that he does do this. And so Peter calls believers to entrust their souls to the faithful creator. This is who God is. He is a faithful creator. Believers are called to entrust themselves to him, not only because he is the one who has made us, but also because he knows what is best for us and will see that through. He is a faithful creator. He is worthy of our trust. And of course, Peter has already shown this throughout his letter. God has elected his people. God has mercifully saved his people. God is preserving his people in the faith until he wonderfully will bless them with their imperishable inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of his son. Now, if this is what God has done and is doing, there is no reason at all we should not trust God to bring us through to the final goal of glory. And the whatever persecution we encounter along the way, proclaiming Christ Jesus, God will use these as a means of drawing us closer to himself and preparing us for eternity. And in the midst of suffering, what does Peter insist on? Let's not miss those little words at the end of the verse. While doing good. The divine call is to trust God and do good. Trust God and continue to strive for holiness and godliness. Do not be put off by the circumstances that you encounter. Instead, 
face it head on with a joy that cannot be shaken, a joy that is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace and grace alone, and if only by grace, if only by God, then it's God who will keep us persevering until the end. Here is a very similar conclusion to what Asaph came to in Psalm 73 that we looked at last week. Asaph's final words, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Trust in the Lord and do good. Of course, we have the greatest example of this in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike us, he was completely without sin and yet he too suffered. On the cross, he uttered those words recorded in Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the same word that Peter used. Jesus entrusted his spirit to the Father. And by his willingness to suffer unjustly, Christ became the means through which sinners may be saved. And while we can never duplicate this, for we are totally reliant upon him for salvation, nevertheless, he also serves as the model, the example for us to follow in this world. So may we who, by God's mercy and grace, bear the name of Jesus, may we honour him in all that we do. And may we rejoice when we too are counted worthy to suffer dishonour for his name. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your holiness, for your righteousness. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful creator. We thank you that by your work, you bring your people into salvation. By your grace alone, drawing them to faith in Christ. Father, help us to have great assurance and confidence that because it was your work to draw us to yourself, it is your work that keeps us there. But as we have seen by the commands given by Peter and earlier through this service by other writers in Scripture, we are reminded of our need to work hard, to strive for holiness, to trust in you and to do good. Father, may you develop in us a sense of uh, understanding that we as Christians are not exempt from suffering in this world. We have been saved from the greatest suffering that we could ever experience of eternity in hell and uh, we should be ever grateful for that and rejoice then that when we experience suffering for standing for you now that we know that we will we belong to you and that we will stand with Christ praising you for all eternity. Father, for those who are here today who, who do not yet know you, who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, may you, by the power of your spirit through your word, convict them. Show them the inadequacy of trusting in themselves and draw them to Christ, the good news of salvation that is found in him alone. And Father, as we move forward and as the years go by and as we know the culture continually is moving away from a kind of faux Christianity, 
And we know that sufferings will come. We pray that you would help us to remain firm, to continue to stand your grace, to continue to stand firm for the gospel, continue to speak the truth in love, knowing that it is you that who keeps us persevering until the end. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.